This is the Benson Gregory Podcast. Interviews with leaders, changemakers, and real-world influencers. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Your support means a lot. Now, here's your host. Hi, I'm Benson Gregory. Our special guest via telephone this week is Congressman Andy Barr. He is uh, the representative from Kentucky's 6th Congressional District, and he joins us by phone this morning. Congressman, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Hey, Benson, great to be with you. i uh, got to start with a big congratulations. Uh, when I was doing my prep for today, I saw literally yesterday you had just won an award from the National Federation of Independent Businesses as the Guardian of Small Business. And that's given out to Congress for, for legislation that is uh, for, for helping pass legislation beneficial to small business and to block legislation that's bad to small business. So congratulations on your award. Well, thanks a lot. And there shouldn't have to be an award to stand up for small businesses, the backbone of our economy, the number one source of jobs, not only in my district, but across the country. And uh, truth be told, they have a scorecard but I don't even necessarily look to see whether they're scoring my votes. I just instinctively know that we've got to be a champion for small business and uh, fight uh, over taxation and regulation. And when we have a pandemic and uh, economic shutdowns related to the pandemic, it was altogether appropriate, especially given my position on the, the, uh, the committee with jurisdiction at the center of the economy to step in and provide these forgivable loans. Um, this, it, it astonishes me that some, including my opponent for Congress, is critical of this program when it was a bipartisan program. We worked across the aisle to develop this program. It's totally transparent. Anyone can find out what businesses received the loans and how much. And it's, it's called the Paycheck Protection Program for a reason. It doesn't, it, it's not a slush fund as is represented in uh, an attack ad against me. Uh, it's not for donors. It's for the American people, and it's not just for the employers. It's mainly for the workers. It's called the Paycheck Protection Program because the loan is not forgivable unless the employer brings back his or her employees. And, and that's what it did. It accomplished keeping p- uh, workers on the payroll. Over 50,000 small businesses, Main Street small businesses in Kentucky, received these forgivable loans from this bipartisan piece of legislation. Uh, it is beyond me why a politician for Congress, my opponent, would be critical of that uh, that job-saving program. I remember you and I talked about it right when it was starting to happen or was just beginning to roll out. And uh, we discussed how the government was shutting down your business. The government was telling you, no, you can't operate. So they had to step in. It was almost their obligation at that point, or it was their obligation to do something to salvage small business. And this was the best way to do it it seemed at the time, right? And, and even still looking back. Well, that's right. I mean, this was the government telling uh, restaurants, hotels, um, bricks-and-mortar retailers, don't open your business. Stop um, serving your customers. Um, and so there had to be some kind of compensation for that. And that's what this uh, very successful forgivable loan program was all about, over $535 billion in emergency liquidity that got to Main Street America and kept these uh, small businesses in operation and kept people on the payroll, keeping them from having to go into the unemployment lines, which have been which has been a bureaucratic nightmare for those of my constituents who had to navigate unemployment. Um, uh, we were trying to avoid even more people having to to deal with that bureaucratic nightmare, and we were successful in keeping 
uh, millions of Americans employed uh, through these uh, economic shutdowns. We've learned a lot since uh, the the, um, the spring shutdowns. Uh, I don't think even with uh, uh, resurgence of the virus, we need to go back to those draconian shutdowns. We've learned that through masking, social distancing, hand hygiene, uh, and through focusing on uh, fo- focusing our attention on protecting vulnerable populations, seniors, and uh, people who have uh, immunity deficiency. Uh, th- that's really where our focus needs to be, but shutting down our economy is, is not the right solution. Having said that, there are some businesses that will remain in distress, particularly related to the travel industry, some retail, commercial real estate, hotels, restaurants um, that just have uh, down revenue because of the nature of their business. That's why I support a second, or it's actually be like the fifth <laughs> bill, but it would be another round of the Paycheck Protection Program we don't really have to appropriate more funds. So we've, we've got $135 billion in funds uh, that have already been appropriated. We just need a reauthorization and an improvement, expansion of the program, and targeted to those industries that are truly distressed. Unfortunately, Speaker Pelosi continues to block that for political reasons and uh, unrelated demands um, uh, demands to bail out a liberal uh cities for pre-COVID mm-hmm. liabilities, liabilities totally unrelated to the virus and, and the pandemic, and um, she's, she's more interested in legalizing marijuana than helping distressed businesses, um, and also you know direct payments to undocumented illegal immigrants. It just doesn't make any sense. We, we, she also is holding up uh, reasonable reform, uh, re- reforms to protect these businesses and schools and colleges, universities from frivolous lawsuits. We believe that the next round, the next stimulus should have reasonable liability protections that will be vital to reopening our economy. So is she holding it up, in your opinion, just exclusively because of politics, or does she have some other, you know, more sort of philosophical or higher reason for holding things up? Well, she does have um, some very uh, um, bizarre philosophical uh, demands, like... Um, direct payments to illegal immigrants, defunding the police, uh, legalization of marijuana nationwide, uh, bailing out uh, um, public pension programs uh, that have been, you know, in a bad fiscal shape long before the pandemic. So uh, she certainly does have some ideological demands, but they're unrelated to the pandemic. And so one can only conclude it's, it's just politics that's getting in the way. There's probably never been an election that is more clearly drawn the lines between uh, Republican and Democrat than this one. And one of the big areas uh, of difference between the two is, of course, the abortion issue. We talk to you a lot here on the program, um, and we don't necessarily always touch on this, but just to make sure that people understand where you are on it, talk to us about abortion. Well, you're right. There's a lot separating the parties right now, um, and... There is a, a lot on the line in this election. Um, you know, freedom is on the ballot, freedom versus socialism. Uh, uh, a strong national defense is on the line, whether or not we have a president and a Congress that are willing to stand up to uh, Chinese aggression, the Chinese Communist Party's threat to the United States from the pa- pandemic and beyond, or whether or not we're going to have leadership uh, like Joe Biden, who has family financial entanglements with uh, state-owned enterprises with the Chinese Communist Party and will be soft on China. Those are big issues, but there's nothing that distinguishes the two parties right now on the, than on the issue of life, and it's certainly playing out um, 
in uh, the congressional race in the 6th Congressional District, where uh, I have a demonstrated, proven track record of being 100% pro-life, endorsed by National Right to Life, Kentucky Right to Life. I'm proud of that record. And an opponent who has said he's pro-abortion and would enable the radical extreme Pelosi pro-abortion agenda. And what we're seeing, it's so radical right now that we can't even get uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi to bring to a floor the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, a bill that would simply say that if a baby, a human being, is born alive in the course of an abortion, that uh, that all involved, the doctors have a moral and legal obligation to uh, administer medical care to that human being. Um, that 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 is, uh, one would think that the vast majority of pro-choice Americans would be for that bill, but their agenda is so extreme now that they actively uh, support infanticide. And um, certainly, we need uh, leaders in Congress that are going to protect American taxpayers. Uh, to protect their conscience rights, to protect Americans from having their tax dollars go to support late-term abortions. And that's the difference between me and my opponent. My opponent will not defend life. I will. My opponent will enable Pelosi's extreme pro-abortion agenda. I will fight it tooth and nail every step of the way. And just for clarification, you're not talking about a late-term abortion there. You're talking about a child that has been born. I'm talking about a child that has been born in a botched abortion but I would also say that I'm strongly supportive of reasonable restrictions on late-term abortion, mm-hmm. partial birth abortion. Uh, my opponent uh, simply will not commit uh, to defending life in a robust and vigorous way and standing up to Nancy Pelosi. That's a big difference. The, the people of Central and Eastern Kentucky uh, have deep, uh, abiding uh, morals, and they do not appreciate uh, these kinds of radical politicians who will not defend life. One of the other areas that you are very passionate about, it seems, is when it comes to veterans affairs. Uh, a lot of the work you've done, from my perspective, from what I've been able to glean from watching you over the years, uh, the, the work that you've done in Congress has been to benefit veterans. Uh, is, is there a particular reason why you're so passionate about veteran care? Is there you know, a lot of military service in your family, or, or, or what is it about that that really pulls at your heart? Absolutely. Both of my grandfathers served in World War II in the South Pacific. In fact, uh, my maternal grandfather was a battlefield-promoted colonel in uh, New Guinea and the Philippines. Uh, my, my late wife's grandfather, who I had the privilege of meeting, was a paratrooper at Corregidor. Uh, so they all fought in the South Pacific. My great-uncle uh, fought the Nazis uh, at the Battle of the Bulge in Europe and came in after D-Day. Mm. Uh, and my father was a Vietnam-era uh, Army veteran, Army Reserves veteran. Uh, I, I knew that when I was elected to Congress, uh, one of the most important things I could do for the people of the 6th Congressional District, regardless of party, would be to be an advocate for our veterans. And so we formed the 6th Congressional District Veterans Coalition. We meet uh, quarterly. Um, we used to meet in person. Now we're doing it uh, by conference call or virtually. Uh, but it has been a platform for us to do casework, to fight for veterans so that they can get the benefits that they've earned uh, and also find lost medals. Uh, address the issue of veteran suicide. I serve now on the Veterans Affairs Committee where we've had the privilege of addressing this tragedy of 20 veterans uh, taking their own lives every single day in this country. It's a national uh, crisis. It's a national tragedy. We have been an advocate for uh, grant programs to organizations that intervene with veterans with post-traumatic stress, 
Uh, we're especially uh, advocating for equine-assisted therapy, given that I represent the horse capital of the world. This is an effective, evidence-based therapy that is helping many, many veterans overcome their uh, traumatic brain injuries, their post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's working, and it's one of the suicide prevention strategies. We also passed a bipartisan bill this Congress to add a STEM scholarship as part of the GI Bill. And then during the pandemic, when the VA took down the disability benefits questionnaires that that impeded uh, veterans and their advocates from accessing um, the disability benefits that, that veterans have earned, we passed a bill out of the House, bipartisan work with a Democrat from Virginia, to uh, force the VA to put those back online and allow uh, advocacy, advocacy organizations to help these veterans navigate the very complicated disability claims process. So whether it's disability claims, whether it's electronic medical records, whether it's suicide prevention, equine-assisted therapy, improving the GI Bill, giving veterans more choices of health care options, we have been a leader and champion on that um, because they deserve it, because these are the heroes of our country who have sacrificed to preserve and protect our freedom. And, um, you know, we owe it to them to give them everything that uh, they have given us. A lot of the work that you have done in Congress has been extremely nonpartisan like that um, and relating to veterans. One that touches on both of those is the the move of Camp Nelson recently, which I noticed you featured in one of your TV commercials. Um, Camp Nelson uh, became one of Kentucky's only two national monuments. That's pretty neat. And you you had a hand in in making that happen. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, when, when one of the benefits of this Veterans Coalition is where we actually convene veterans to give us ideas. They've given us great ideas, like renaming the Lexington VA Medical Center in honor of two Iwo Jima World War II veterans, uh, Marines, Troy Bowling from our area who recently passed away, and Franklin Salisley, who um, raised the flag at Iwo Jima, was born in Fleming County, Kentucky, and was a, a hero and is one of those uh, six Marines and Navy corpsmen who are featured on that Iwo Jima Memorial, uh, uh, raised the flag on top of Mount Suribachi. Mm-hmm. And we, we renamed the Lexington VA after those two heroes. But also we recognized from the Veterans Coalition that we need to do, do more to, to elevate the profile and awareness of Camp Nelson. Everybody knows Camp Nelson, of course, the National Cemetery there, which is also under the jurisdiction of the, of the Veterans Affairs Committee. But the reason why the cemetery is there is an inspiring story the struggle of Kentucky slaves who escaped to that uh, refugee camp to enlist. The men enlisted in the Army of the Ohio, the Union Army, um, and they brought their wives and their children uh, to be refugees there. And, you know, one of the, one of the stories is, is when uh, an escaped slave made it to Camp Nelson there in Jessamine County. He said, I had found my, my Canada. Uh, you know, it, it was his freedom. And not only were these slaves... Uh, going to Camp Nelson uh, to 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 achieve their freedom, but they were enlisting in the army to put their lives on the line in sacrifice for our country uh, and and to fight for their freedom. Uh, and I think that is a, 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 an inspiring story that, in a divided time in American politics, can bring people together. We've had racial difficulties, uh, racial strife uh, in this country over the summer. This is a way where we can all celebrate the story of freedom of our country, always striving to become a more perfect union. And the interesting part of Camp Nelson, the story of Camp Nelson, is that um, when 
Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It only applied to states in the act of rebellion, to the Confederate states. Of course, Kentucky was not a Confederate state, mm-hmm. but we were, we were a slave-holding, non-Confederate border state. And so the only way that a slave in Kentucky could, could achieve emancipation was to go to Camp Nelson, enlist in the Army, and fight for, for, for their freedom. And I just think uh, the, the more Americans who learn about this story, the better. I convinced uh, President Trump and Secretary Zinke, Interior Secretary Zinke, a couple years ago to designate Camp Nelson as a national monument as part of the National Park Service. This was President Trump's first designation of a national monument, Kentucky's first national monument. And um, a great credit goes to the Trump administration for working with me to elevate this important part of African-American history, Kentucky history, and American history. And now Camp Nelson is on the map as part of the National Park Service. We've got a great superintendent out there with the National Park Service, uh, Ernie Price, is, is doing a great job. And we're, we're bringing federal resources uh, to Camp Nelson to uh, continue to elevate uh, and, and spread that story nationwide. Camp Nelson's a very big deal to me. I live fairly close to it. My great-great-grandfather was actually stationed there briefly during the war. And uh, it's, it's just a great place to go and recreate. And it's such a neat place to learn more about because the stories there are fascinating. Connections to John Fee, to Berea College, yes. uh, all yes. kinds of just amazing stories coming out of there. The history is so rich. How does the National Monument status benefit the county directly? Is there something, that, you know, finances, financial uh, benefits that's coming in there, tourism? What, what exactly is it that really helps Jessamine County there? Well, absolutely. Number one, there's federal dollars uh, from the U.S. Department of Interior National Park Service that will be coming to refurbish the assets that are on the grounds there. Um, uh, there will be projects to uh, recapture and retell the story. There's a heritage center there um, that's kind of like a museum. Um, there will be various um, fortifications that will be, and some barracks that will be rebuilt uh, as replicas. So the story will be told in a more enriching fashion. Uh, through federal dollars, but but more importantly, because this is now part of the National Park Service, the, the big arrowhead will be out there uh, on the roadway in Jessamine County, uh, uh, so it's going to direct more tourists there, and we're going to bring to Central Kentucky, to Jessamine County, uh, tourism dollars. There's going to be a lot more tourists who come, uh, especially Civil War buffs, uh, people who go uh, uh, to view uh, uh, national battlefields, uh, they will now see this on the map as well, even though it's not a battlefield. It has certainly ma- major Civil War history significance. And so it's going to bring tourism to Jessamine County, and, and uh, that means more people patroning uh, restaurants and hotels and, and downtown and Nicholasville and Lexington. It really is a significant historical site. Um, we had talked at the uh, after you were reelected last time uh, about the people who didn't vote for you and how you were going to reach out to them. I think we've kind of touched on a lot of ways that you're doing nonpartisan things. But how have you reached over to the other side of the aisle? Uh, have you made much progress and headway uh, with picking up those people? And what are your plans rolling in your next term? I think I have. Um, number one, it's, it's what we do in our work in Congress, working in a bipartisan working group, uh, passing bipartisan bills uh, with uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, for example, on China and countering the, the Chinese threat. Uh, the veterans' uh, bills that I've mentioned uh, have been very bipartisan, uh, very bipartisan efforts, working across the aisle to reform the thoroughbred horse industry, working with uh, Congressman Paul Tonko, a liberal Democrat from upstate New York, but who also represents a great American racetrack. I represent Keeneland, 
uh, right across the street from your studios there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also, um, or right next door, I should say. Um, uh, but also, uh, you know, my, my friend Paul uh, represents Saratoga. And so we have a mutual interest in you. You've got to get to know and build relationships uh, with uh, folks across the aisle. Yes, we have vigorous debates and, and, and disagreements, and there are profound differences in terms of whether or not uh, some of my colleagues want to take us in a socialist direction or whether or not they're pro-life or, or pro-abortion. Profound differences. But where we can find common ground, uh, building those relationships matters and makes a difference. And I think Democrats in my district, I am a Republican, but I have many, many Democrats who support my work in Congress because we don't ask them whether they're a Republican or Democrat. When small business owners came to us looking for help through a paycheck protection loan, we didn't ask them whether they were Republican or Democrat. If they were a constituent and they lived in the 6th Congressional District, we help them, and we do that, and we approach that all the time. Also, accessibility. You know, it's, it's no secret that more, some of my more liberal constituents, constituents who do not vote for me, live in Fayette County. Um, Fayette County, um, it, you know, is, is a more liberal city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we are accessible to our constituents, including those who disagree with us. We, we, we meet with them. Um, and I think the fact that we listen will earn ticket-splitting votes. I take pride in the fact that uh, I hope I will continue to outperform the top of the ticket. I'm down ballot. I'm, uh, I'm the third uh, item on the on the list in this election, and, and my hope is, and, and I'm certainly trying to earn enough support where I uh, carry the ballot, which will show that, um, that I have uh, more bipartisan support than anyone, top to bottom, from either party on the ballot, and I think we're going to achieve that goal in this election. Uh, I think I saw earlier this week that you voted on Monday. Is that correct? Uh, yesterday, actually, yes. Oh, yesterday. Um, okay, so Tuesday. You voted on Tuesday. We voted Tuesday, one week out, and we encourage uh, voters who have not yet voted, who have not uh, asked for an absentee mail-in ballot, we're encouraging folks uh, who are registered voters who know that they're going to be voting in person to go ahead and vote early in person uh, especially those who live in Fayette County, because um, we know that uh, the lines will be long on Election Day. There's only eight polling locations. Normally we have our precinct polling locations spread out all over the city of Lexington. Uh, that's not the case this time around. And whether you live in Woodford County or Jessamine County or Madison County, we also encourage if you know who you're going to vote for, if you know how you're going to vote, go ahead, do yourself a favor uh, to vote early in person this week or uh, Monday before Election Day, uh, to make way for the tens of thousands of Kentucky voters who we know are going to be voting on Election Day. Those lines will be long, so we want to help them, uh, and we also want to help you to shorten those lines as much as possible. It's very secure. It's very easy. Um, we recognize that there are some folks who, who don't trust or don't like voting absentee or by paper mail-in ballot. But um, voting early in person is as safe and secure and reliable as voting on Election Day. So if you know how you're going to vote, uh, go ahead, do yourself a favor, and do a favor for those folks who are going to vote on Election Day. Uh, help us shorten those lines on Election Day. Uh, I actually voted myself yesterday, and uh, the line was long, but it moved very quickly. I think we were in and out in about 10 minutes. 
uh, folks right. were doing a fantastic job. And just to reiterate, because this was a big question, you already answered it, but I want to ask you again. It, it, you're confident in the system. You believe that the early voting is safe and that the votes hey, will Benson. be counted. Well, the, the, certainly the early in-person voting is safe. I have confidence in uh, Secretary of State Adams and the system that he set up uh, in terms of the absentee system in Kentucky. I cannot say the same thing uh, about some of the other states. I was uh, talking to some of my Pennsylvania colleagues uh, in the Congress, and they're very disheartened by what they're seeing in terms of um, the absentee ballots. There is, unfortunately, opportunity for voter fraud uh, with some of these mail-in ballots, particularly in states that allow for uh, ballot harvesting, where individuals do not have to take their own ballot physically in person themselves. Uh, that is a recipe for disaster. Some of these states are going to be counting ballots after the election. Mm-hmm. And and if the, uh, if the election turns out in ways that um, some people don't like, I worry about... Um, uh, ballot harvesting and people bringing to uh, several days after the election ballots uh, to to counteract the lead uh, that um, that that the candidate may have at the time. And of course, what I'm talking about is the possibility that President Trump wins election night. And I and and based on the polling I'm seeing, the president is going to win election day voters in a landslide. A landslide. Uh, the, the 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 problem is the president. Uh, for the president is that uh, he is running um, significantly behind in mail-in absentee voter uh, uh, votes. And so if he wins on election night, it may not be over, and there could be some litigation contesting uh, the the validity of some of these mail-in ballots. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck, and uh, we'll talk to you after the election. Hey, Benson, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for listening to our conversation with Congressman Andy Barr from Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. Incidentally, we did reach out to Josh Hicks in his campaign. He is the competitor of Andy Barr in this election. And as of this recording, the campaign for Josh Hicks has not responded to my interview request. If they get back to us in time, we'd be more than happy to record an interview with them. For more information on the Benson Gregory podcast, you can visit my website, which is BensonGregory.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.